Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. He was clearly very, very upset, very angry, pretty irrational. We didn't want to have anything to do with it. We backed away and took our marbles and went home. That was a funky prosecution anyway. Can you lay out for me the FBI's case against the pilot, what that looks like? So the only place to look for a motive was his work as a prosecutor. This is Episode 6, The Prime Suspect. I'm your host, David Payne. There are people out there who know who we killed you. We will never give up our search for the truth. We will never I have no idea. Up. It could have been a, a vacuum cleaner salesman. And I never thought I'd be here 15 years later. I think this was a three-year slow burn among two strong-willed people. But if he thought he was right, he would pursue that course as hard as possible, almost to a fault. You think it got him killed? I do. I do. I do. I do. I do. Tom Wales was 49 years old when he was shot through the daylight basement window by someone hiding out in his backyard. And his 2001 murder in the sleepy enclave of Queen Anne would set off shockwaves in the greater city of Seattle. Fingers started pointing quickly at potential suspects, and most of those fingers pointed at Steve Jackson, the pilot, the guy we've given this alias to, and who Wales had prosecuted for three years over the rebuilding of a single Bell helicopter. Here's Mike Carter and Steve Militesh from the Seattle Times. You know, I had spoken to Tom in the fairly recent past about a prosecution that he'd been involved in. Um, Is this the helicopter case? Yeah. I'd had some threats, threatening email and, and a threatening phone call from the defendant in that case. And I had called Tom just a week or so before because the pilot was demanding a retraction on a story that I'd written. And so when I heard it was Tom who was dead, that was just about the first thing that popped into my mind. And I talked to people, both the FBI and people in the U.S. Attorney's Office, about that helicopter case, particularly Bob Westinghouse, who had worked on it with him. And Bob was in shock. He was in absolute shock. And he disappeared shortly after that. They put him in protective custody, I think, at that point, not long after that. Westinghouse wasn't the only one in fear for his life. Members of the Washington Ceasefire Board would also go into hiding after the killing as no one knew who might have killed Tom Wales. But it was clear that within weeks, if not days of the killing, the FBI would focus on the pilot, even as they set about to eliminate other suspects, family, neighbors, and even someone Wales had bumped into in his car three months before his death. I had initially heard about an incident in a parking garage, I think, or some kind of garage right. involving Tom, and thought, wow, I mean, if something like that led to this, you know, what is wrong with the right. world? 
What happened? Describe what yeah, happened. Yeah, describe that. that. There was some kind of fender bender in the garage. Yeah, it was as a I fender recall. bender in a garage. I don't recall who hit who. I think Tom might have rear ended this guy. It got heated. Words were exchanged. They came out of the cars. I think they were in each other's face, but there were no blows exchanged. I don't know even whether a citation was issued, but it got reported in some fashion. Possibly it's a hit run because I think Tom may have decided that he needed to leave the situation because it was out of control. But you did your own look Oh, yeah. Into I, did I you talk to, to the I limo to driver? The chauffeur. Uh, yeah, I found him. I found his lawyer. I talked to the cops. I don't think anybody, after the initial conversations with the driver of the car and that, felt that this guy was someone who was skulking around in a backyard with a Makarov pistol. It just didn't make any sense. That was exactly the phrase that had been going through my mind as I examined every possible theory in the case. Whatever it was, at least based on what we knew, it just didn't make sense. And FBI investigators were in the same place, too, 16 years ago. So their focus kept returning to the pilot. And it looked like the FBI locked in on that pretty quickly. I mean, within days or weeks, if not a month. Was that your assessment of the case? Or? Well, I think a search warrant was served by early December, and there had to be build-up to that. You just don't go get a search warrant on the fly. So they were obviously gathering information. That, so that tells you right away that where some of the focus was, at least on paper. And it was pretty clear that that was a major aspect of the investigation. The other theories were starting to drop off by then, and we were hearing that that was a primary focus. Although, they, you know, they kept insisting that, you know, all options are open. Despite that rhetoric from the FBI, as agents sharpened their focus, the media's eyes followed. And with them, public suspicion on the pilot deepened. I mean, it seems like at every turn we shifted back to the pilot because there was most of what you would be looking for there. There was bad blood. There was potentially the opportunity. There was motive. In fact, by 2007, six years after the crime, federal suspicions of the pilot had so solidified that Jeffrey Tubin and his editors at The New Yorker decided they couldn't tell their story without identifying the pilot by name, something we weren't prepared to do at least just yet. You did some fairly extensive reporting about, and I think you were the first person to identify who the actual prime suspect was. I was. We had a vigorous debate at The New Yorker about whether you use his name. Tell me about that. Well, you know, it's a very serious thing to name someone as a murder suspect. It has potential to damage their reputation severely, and it... You know, it's not something anyone should do lightly. But it was our conclusion that not only was the only suspect in this case, but he had brought attention to himself by filing lawsuits involving whales that you couldn't really tell the story without identifying him by name. Yeah. The Seattle police and the FBI identified right off the bat. His name was floated by Tom's friends who had concerns after conversations with Tom. It was floated by his colleagues like Bob Westinghouse who had worked on the helicopter case with him. And so this guy was in the crosshairs from literally the first day. This is why it was important to look at Tom Whale's life because there was no suggestion that anyone had 
a serious axe to grind against him. So the only place to look for a motive was his work as a prosecutor. There was only one case where the defendant had an axe to grind and had a very big, long-lasting axe to grind with Tom Wales. So it was just obvious that was someone who needed to be looked at very carefully. And very carefully they were, not just when Tubin was writing his article in 2007, but literally within weeks of the murder. Something Bone corroborated to me in our call that day. Tell me what Bone said about the focus on the pilot. Here's what's interesting to me in that scenario. By the time that Bone took over the case in January of 2002, he said that was the suspect, not a suspect, the suspect. They seem to have honed in on for a variety of reasons. They were pointed to him by a number of people who said, this guy's odd, he had bad blood with Tom on this case. David, there are a lot of weird people out there. What evidence did they have that he was involved? It's almost like everywhere they looked, they had people who affirmatively came to them and said, exculpate me, and did the opposite. Looking at this case with the hindsight of time, it is in fact easy to see how suspicion first came upon and stuck to the pilot. Everyone around Tom knew about this helicopter case, which was so outside the norm of his prior cases, as well as the pilot's public outrage over his prosecution. And Tom was unnerved about it. Here's his friend, Ralph Fasciatelli. Tell me about the last time you saw Tom. A couple weeks after 9-11, Tom and I decided to hike a mountain in the Cascades here called Mount Dickerman. I remember Tom talking about the case he was prosecuting involving the pilot, and Tom was fearless almost to a fault. But I remember he, I don't think I'd call it fear, but trepidation and grudging respect that the individual had conviction that what he was doing was right and wouldn't let go. I think Tom really didn't know what to make of this guy. He was intelligent. He was dogged, but maybe even a little bit crazy. And I could tell there was something in his voice about it. The way you just described him as somebody not willing to let go is almost the same way you described Tom. Yeah, I think they were very similar. I mean, you can imagine, you know, two bulldogs on the other side. Did he talk about the case or did he talk about the person? He talked about the person more than anything else. The guy was smart. The guy was willing to put it all on the line for his belief. But I also think he thought the guy was capable of doing almost anything. I did sense a certain weariness and trepidation, and he didn't know what to make of the pilot. He didn't know what to make of him. There was another person who didn't quite know what to make of the pilot either someone the pilot had known for many years and who would come to play one of the most curious roles in this whole saga yet, a man named Bruce McClung. Bruce McClung is an 86-year-old man who lives alone in a 500-square-foot cabin deep in the woods of Washington. His home is surrounded by the relics of six abandoned cars, a rusted GMC van, an assorted lawn equipment that shows no sign of being used in years. With no running water and off the power grid, 
He's the definition of a man who largely lives off the land, but that life is nearing its end. McClung is dying of skin cancer, and doctors give him no more than two years to live. Back before he was sick, and when he was still working as an insurance adjuster in Bellingham, Washington, McClung was friends with the pilot, and that friendship would put him on the radar of federal investigators shortly after the murder. But it would be six years before the media would find him. Not surprisingly, it was Militech and Carter. Can you describe how you guys found him? Well, the first time I went up alone, and I, I can't even remember exactly. I know that on a subsequent trip with Mike, we took a wrong turn. <laughs> Got about 30 minutes wayward because he was out in the middle of nowhere. You know, we had some vague idea where he was, but it, the ultimate last couple turns were down some dirt roads and just a few homes scattered about. Yeah, and, a lot of no trespassing signs. Jody and I were familiar with those no trespassing signs. We had flaunted them, too, on our first visit to McClung. But over the course of the last six months, well, we've developed a relationship with McClung that now makes squeezing around his locked gate feel a little less sketchy and a little more like climbing in your parents' bedroom window. All right, can you get around there? I can't. Watch this. I'm getting hit by the branch. No. raining again. Shocking, said no one ever. But when Militesh and Carter first rolled up on McClung to ask him questions about the pilot... They were in for a bit of a shock. Bruce McClum came out, yeah. Bruce came McClum. out with a Makarov in, his, in the back of his pants when we came out to talk to him. You know, he was uh, very... Yeah, he showed me the uh, Makarov. And that was a strange moment to have somebody connected as a witness to the case pull out a Makarov right in front of you without warning. Yeah, I made an excuse to go to the car for a second. <laughs> was it loaded? Probably. Uh, you know, I can't even remember. I didn't look. I mean, I didn't ask to see it, but, you know, he's carrying a gun in the back of his pants and pulls it out. And goes, Here's a mocker off here. You know, everybody's got so after, these. <laughs> so after that, Mike and I went back <laughs> we to, just sort to, of, well, together. Okay. We're out in the middle of nowhere with this guy, and he's got guns, and he's, yeah, it's just probably not a, we're just not going to stay very much longer. Yeah, I didn't feel he was dangerous, but it's just an unusual situation. He, uh... You know, it was clearly really uncomfortable talking about this case. Describe Bruce for us. He's an interesting guy with a lot of conflicting feelings. And I think he tries to be as honest as possible. He lives in an unusual situation where I think he has a battery-powered house, a shack out in the middle of nowhere. You know, he would go into town to the library to read up on this case. He shared some thoughts. He was a friend of Yeah. He really didn't want to believe his friend could be guilty, but he'd heard some things that made him pause. He certainly did not have any kind of smoking gun evidence from what I could see. Maybe not a smoking gun, but he did have an arsenal in his cabin. Multiple rifles, a shotgun, and at least three handguns, a 380 Colt ACP, and not just one, but two Makarovs. McClung told Militesh and Carter that his curiosity about his friend's possible connection to the Wales murder led him to purchase the type of gun the FBI says was used in the killing. McClung said he wanted to test the gun to see if it could fire .380s. He also told him he didn't know if the pilot owned a Makarov. What do you make of his explanation for why he had the Makarov? He was curious, kind of a gun person a little bit. You know, believe me, I didn't get a long explanation because I kind of, I got rattled by the fact that he didn't give me much warning and just grabbed this thing. 
But Do you think I, he was trying to threaten you, or he no, just no, no, absolutely not. I, I didn't, and in retrospect, no, because we we went back subsequent times, and it just wasn't what I expected. But no, I, he, the whole conversation had been very cordial. He had been helpful. No hostility, just nervousness. No, I never felt any type of threat. It's hard to explain, but I was with Militesh on this one. Jody and I had been meeting with McClung for months, usually standing in his front yard through all sorts of inclement weather as we peppered him with our questions. But by the time he was comfortable enough to invite us inside, when we got our first glimpse at that weapons cache, well, surprisingly, we weren't nervous either. I think he was flirting with you. Well, who wouldn't? He was flirting with me. I bet he doesn't get many visitors up here. I mean, we are in the middle of nowhere. McClung's been a conundrum for the FBI from the start. He knew the pilot well, very well. As you walk into his cabin, there's a Model 737 prominently displayed on the back shelf, a gift from Jackson. At 30 years Jackson Sr., McClung says that in the late 90s, he was becoming something like a father figure to him. That was before the murder of Tom Wales irreparably severed their relationship. You see, on October 11, 2001, McClung's world began spinning on an entirely different orbit. Luckily for us, McClung had either the foresight or the self-preservation instincts to memorialize his thoughts and actions at the time in a series of memos he wrote. And now, 16 years after the murder, and two years or less before the ignoble death he anticipates, he's finally willing to share these thoughts with two strangers who have showed up unexpectedly on his doorstep beyond the locked gate. McClung has asked that we avoid sensitive personal issues, and he didn't want to read these on tape. So we've engaged an actor to share the relevant portions. For editorial clarity, we have both consolidated and paraphrased portions of his memos, but this is his story in his words. I first met Steve Jackson and his friend Ty Harden over the CB radio in the early 80s. There was a group of us that got on the radio every day and communicated. Ty and Steve were living up on U Street in Bellingham. They were always partying with women and alcohol. We thought they were a little crazy and used to kid them over the radio. I first met Steve Jackson in person in 1986. We would get together for pizza once in a while, and later Steve would invite some of us to his home for barbecues. Steve is a nice-looking man, about 6'1", dark hair, and athletic build. At the time, he was employed by San Juan Airlines, and Ty and Steve were flight instructors in Bellingham. Later, Ty Harden was flying a charter flight for the president of the University of Western Washington. Harden flew too low on approach and crashed the plane into the trees, killing everyone on board. It was after Harden's death that Steve and I became closer. It was at this time that he got a job as a first officer for U.S. Air. McClung's relationship with the pilot was of keen interest to investigators, not only for the insights he could provide into Jackson's character, but for evidence. You see, McClung had had conversations with the pilot both before and after the murder, and those statements would be admissible against Jackson if he were ever arrested for killing Tom Wales. According to McClung, Jackson was furious at Wales for his prosecution of the helicopter case, claiming Wales had lied to him and had cost him a ton in legal fees. When Steve made an offhand remark about being angry and saying he would like to shoot Wales, I became alarmed and urged him to forget about it and get on with his life. 
I said, you cannot shoot someone just because you think he lied about the helicopter matter. McClung advised Jackson to let it go, but Jackson couldn't. And he filed that malicious prosecution case against Wales and the government after the case dismissal. Among the series of memos McClung wrote is one he prepared prior to his grand jury testimony. And in it, he recounts a disturbing sequence of events that followed the fateful night that Tom Wales was shot dead. The murder was on October 11th, 2001, a Thursday. I didn't know about it until Friday night when I read about it in the paper. I think Steve called me that night. He seemed concerned that the FBI would have him on their number one suspect list because of his suit against the government for recovery of his legal expenses in the helicopter case. I asked him if he'd shot Wales. He told me he had not. But he was so concerned about Wales' death that I said, why don't you go hunting with us over at Lake Chapaca this weekend? We had discussed going hunting on prior occasions. He was never sure if he was going or not. And when he called that Friday, I suggested he go. I thought, and he did too, It'd be good for him to get out for a while with the boys hunting instead of sitting around at home and worrying about the murder of Wales and the possible arrival of the FBI to take his computer and stuff again. And as Jody and I press him on what exactly he did after the murder, McClung lets slip another detail, one that's not in his memo to file. He tells us that when he spoke to Jackson after the murder, Jackson told him he should come down to Seattle to meet with his lawyer, a man named David Allen. Not just any lawyer, Jackson's criminal lawyer in the helicopter case. Jackson tells McClung he might be a suspect, too, in need of counsel. But that's getting too far ahead of ourselves. Because first, the two men would need to arrange the details of their hunting trip. We then discussed what he would need for the trip. I said he could use my Remington 30 odd rifle slide action or the 12-gauge Mossberg shotgun. I also took two handguns my Colt 380 semi-automatic, and the Ruger 44 mag revolver. He was bringing his 9mm stainless semi-auto. I cannot remember the make of the gun. We agreed we would meet at the cabin on Saturday, which was opening day of deer season. We left in the early afternoon and arrived at the hunting camp after dark where we met with John and Eric. McClung says the four men camped and hunted for four days. On the second day, he says he asked the pilot again whether he shot whales. When we were up hunting, I asked him if he'd shot or had anything to do with the shooting of whales. He drew himself up straight and got a little pale and said he did not. I said, you know you told me on the phone one night that you were so angry with Tom Wales for lying in papers to the court about the helicopter case that you would like to shoot the SOB. And he said, I know that, but I didn't shoot him. I then said, did you hire anyone to shoot him? And he said, no. When questioned by Jody and I repeatedly on whether he thinks the pilot did it, He consistently replies, I think he may have done it. I don't know, but I think he did. Something he also repeats to Carter and Militesh. This was probably confounding to the FBI because that opinion is not evidence. And the statements that Jackson made at the campsite, well, they're frankly denials, not admissions. And Jackson's statements to McClung also included his alibi. After the murder, Steve told me he was with at a movie in Seattle at the time of the murder. He said he met her at the movie and they were together the rest of the evening. We'll get back to that alibi later. But in the meantime, it was clear from an evidentiary standpoint that McClung was a mixed bag. He would be able to testify to threats the pilot had made before the murder, but he would also provide the defense with a vehicle to admit the pilot's denials and stated alibi. 
And there were some other facts that, frankly, put a little more hair on what his probable testimony would be. Remember that Makarov he pulled out upon meeting Steve Militesh? Let's just say the fact he had a Makarov made the FBI suspicious, even though McClung could produce records that he had bought it after the murder. They know I purchased the Makarov after the murder because we talked about it. The purchase was after the FBI told me that a Makarov was used to fire 380 shells to kill whales. I wanted to see if a Makarov would fire 380 shells. I fired about five rounds at 25 feet and managed to hit the target with all the rounds, but the pattern was sloppy. And there was one other thing that was sloppy. In McClung's expected testimony was one other detail that would cut both ways and would either make you more or less inclined to believe the pilot carried out his threats, depending on who or what you believed. This one involved a mysterious round of 380 ammunition. I first spoke with Jim Powers from the FBI on October 29, 2001. I asked him what kind of round Wales was shot with. He said it was a 380. I told him I had a 380 and he was welcome to check it out if he wanted to. During the following week, I was thinking about this and I took out my 380 Colt and spare magazine to unload them. When I took the top round off the spare clip, I found a nickel-plated hydroshock hollow point round. I was surprised when I saw that round because it did not match all the other brass-colored rounds in the clip. I had hand-loaded all the rounds for my 380, and I did not recall having any commercial nickel-plated 380 rounds. McClung recounted to us his theory about this strange round of ammunition. He says that on the Monday morning of the camping trip, right after the murder, Jackson backed out of the day's planned excursion, and McClung went off hunting without him. McClung decided to leave his Colt 380 with the spare magazine inside his locked van while he went up the road with his other weapons. When he returned several hours later, there was a note on the van from Jackson saying he was worried about McClung because he had been gone so long. McClung says his van has vent windows, and it's very easy to break into. He believes Jackson opened the window and planted the nickel-plated round in the Colt's spare clip to implicate him in the whale's murder. Knowing that Wales was shot with a 380 and finding a strange round in my clip, I had decided that it wouldn't be a good idea if I was found with that round. I was frightened, so I threw it away. The FBI later accused me of maybe shooting Tom Wales for hire. While I was home with Mary on the night of the murder, the FBI has been hound-dogging me. I think I have now become a suspect as they keep telling me they think Steve Jackson set me up. I did not want to be implicated in the murder because I did not have anything to do with it, either the planning or execution of it. Whether he did or didn't, the FBI was clearly on edge, and agents Bone, Sousa, and Gary Shaneline would spend years probing and testing McClung's story. They began playing good cop, bad cop with him, calling him a liar, showing him pictures of Tom Wales in the morgue. They accused him of owning the car that was used in the murder, and even escorting someone down to Seattle to make sure that whoever shot Wales went through with the plan. And the pressure continued unabated for years. My neighbor told me she's hearing a lot of clicking and ticking on her phone. I think the prosecutor, Steve Clymer, is trying to find out all he can about me as a possible suspect, or to check my background if the grand jury comes down with an indictment on Steve, or maybe myself for some reason. And it wasn't just Clymer who was interested in Bruce McClung and what light he might shed on the case as either a witness or a suspect. It was also Eric Holder. According to McClung, 
in an apparent effort to assess his personal credibility, he was summoned to a 2007 lunch in Bellingham with the incoming Attorney General of the United States of America. The mutual suspicion these two parties would share, the FBI of McClung and McClung of the FBI, well, that would have consequences. One thing Jody and I had learned about McClung was he really didn't want any part of this, and the FBI wasn't having any of that. And so, we were not surprised when McClung shared another fact with us, one that is not in his memos, and which we don't know if he shared with the FBI. Steve Jackson owned a Makarov too. Standing outside his front door in the rain one evening, McClung related to us this story. He says that Ty Harden, Jackson's roommate and party buddy in Bellingham, had owned a Makarov, and that after he died in that plane crash, the Hardens told Jackson he could keep the gun. This is provocative information, and we immediately set out to corroborate this critical fact, which would put the unusual type of gun in the possession of the FBI's prime suspect. Armed with sketchy details from McClung, we tracked down Ty's mother, Gloria, to a multi-retail tenant building that formerly housed the Hardin's family business. Then the destination is on your right. Another rainy day in Bellingham. What are the odds this place is still here? None to none. I don't think they're very high odds. Is that a police sign there? Let me go out. No, it's like Mikel Zacco's apartment. Nobody is there anymore. Right up there is 2021. A thrift store has taken over the space formerly rented by the Hardin family. The new tenants know Gloria, and they promise to pass along our information. Not 10 minutes later, I receive a call from Gloria Harden. You can tell by the sound of her voice that Miss Harden's a fierce and independent woman. When I explain why I'm calling, I can feel her stiffen in the awkward silence on the other end of the line. She jumps in to correct me. I suspect you're really trying to find out anything you can about Steve Jackson. I didn't just fall off the turnip truck, she says. Chastened, I concede. But she eventually acquiesces, and we talk for the next 20 minutes. Miss Harden tells me a different story about Jackson. To her, he's a really nice guy who's been mistreated by the FBI. Harden thinks that everyone's barking up the wrong tree if they believe Steve had anything to do with it. He was a fine man, kind and willing to do anything. A good kid, she says. Sensing the conversation is running its course, I eventually ask her about Ty's guns. Did he have any? At first, she's not responsive. But on further questioning, she tells me, I'm sure he probably did. He was in the military after all. And when I follow up with what we all really want to know, point blank, did Steve Jackson receive a Makarov from her son's collection after he died? Well, Miss Harden demurs again. She says it was her husband who went over to the house after her son died. He would have been the one who would know. Jody's been listening in on my side of the conversation in the car as we talked. So. It's the husband. How do we track that down? Well, the husband's deceased. I know. Um, the kids? So. The brother, the siblings. It's the sibling. 
the siblings who don't live in let's go to the courthouse and see if I can do a little digging on they know the names of the children who are adults I'm sure now but she did say that Ty had guns yeah she did corroborate that and she didn't know whether the husband had done anything with the guns right yeah so that wire isn't dead yet the wire may not have been dead, but Ty's brother Jeff might as well have been. Hi there. We are looking for a guy by the name of Jeff Harden. We, would like we searched all over Northwest Washington, leaving cards at his work and trying multiple addresses. If you could give me a shout. Right, Thanks, you too. Like Emily Holt, though, Harden would never return our call despite multiple attempts to reach him. But notwithstanding our present inability to establish the chain of title on Hardin's Makarov, what the FBI had in McClung was a witness who could put this unusual type of weapon in the hands of their prime suspect, Steve Jackson. And that was confusing to us on many levels. You see, the FBI had been publicly touting its nationwide efforts to track down the gun that killed whales. Why would they be searching across the country if they knew from McClung that their suspect had a Makarov? We took on projects that have never been done, at least from my knowledge, in the Bureau before. Give me an example of a project that's never been done. The Makarov Project. The Makarov Project. That's supervisory FBI agent Bob Geislin telling NBC's Sarah James about their code name for tying the gun to their suspect. Or more specifically, tying a specialized aftermarket Makarov barrel to their suspect. According to the FBI... The slugs found in Tom Whale's house had rifling marks that didn't match a standard Makarov. These slugs had six counterclockwise lands and grooves in them, and in the parlance of forensic experts, the telltale markings were six left, whereas a standard Makarov barrel leaves marks with four clockwise lands and grooves, or four right in the vernacular. To reconcile these facts, the FBI concluded that the gun used to kill whales was a Makarov fitted with a specific replacement barrel that carved six left markings in the slugs. And they initiated the Makarov project to track down every one of these barrels in the country. Here's former FBI assistant special agent in charge, David Gomez. Let's talk about the weapon that was used in this case. It has been widely reported that there was a replacement barrel associated with the Makarov that when the ballistic analysis was done, turned out to be relatively unique. There were only a couple thousand of these replacement barrels made in the United States by federal arms. I knew about the barrels because when I arrived in Seattle, there was a big backload of people that had to be checked, gun dealers that had to be checked. What they wanted to do was they wanted to inspect all people who owned a Makarov and take a look at their weapon and see if the barrel had ever been exchanged for another barrel and, and then make a comparison of that weapon to the, the rounds that had been discovered. I'm trying to picture what that looks like when the FBI shows up at somebody's door and says, I want your gun and I want to test fire it. And An FBI agent will approach, he'll identify himself, he or she, and they'll say, hi, I'm conducting an investigation of a homicide of a, of a United States attorney, which always gets people's attention. And we'd like to find out, do you still have that weapon, number one? Would you let us take a look at it? You're not a suspect. We just want to look at the weapon because when did you purchase it? How long have you owned it? It does seem 
as we're talking about it, to be a little bit of a wild goose chase because presumably if you had shot Tom Wales with a Makarov, you're not going to say that you have a Makarov when the FBI comes to your door and says, can I see your Makarov? No, that, that's kind of illogical, but you might have sold it. You might have had one and sold it, and so that's the kind of lead that was there was several thousand of these type of leads right. that were backed up. It seems like a challenging exercise is the most charitable way I can put it. It was a management challenge, that's for sure, because I know that a lot of agents saw the leads as they were handed out were somewhat of a burden because they were given above and beyond their own caseloads. Right. Well, not just in your office, but across the country. That's correct. So across the country, as you're getting these leads, these were no longer priority leads. It was a priority in the Seattle field office. But it may not have been a priority in Miami and Washington, D.C. or New York. Certainly wasn't a priority. These things were sort of stacked up for years. As the FBI went about the decades-long task of unstacking these leads, I couldn't help think they were missing what was right under their nose. They already had a witness who could put this type of gun in the hands of their suspect. And rather than nurture that witness, they were putting him in the sweat box. This was a pattern we had seen with other witnesses in the case. And I asked Agent Gomez about their strategy. Right, I mean, that's a pretty heavy hand. Yeah, and I've always felt that even in a homicide case, as you're trying to develop information about suspects, you you get more, catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar and to get somebody's cooperation. Unless, of course, you have some reason to believe that that person was involved. And that, of course, begs the question of what the FBI believes. If they don't think McClung was involved, wouldn't they have been better off using honey? You see, McClung shared with us another fact, also not in his memos. McClung had been on yet another hunting trip with Jackson, this one before the murder. And on this trip, Jackson wasn't just hoping to bag a buck. He was there to stop by a hunting store to pick up something else a Makarov replacement barrel. Next week on Somebody Somewhere. You know we got to find that gun shop. We do. We also have to find the casing. You realize you've created a complete dead end for us. I've had a good day. (laughs) So what I've brought is two different Makarov pistols. A regular Makarov pistol is going to have four lands and grooves and a right-hand twist. There have been a lot of wild goose chases in this thing, but that was probably the biggest one so far. What a fucking boondoggle. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. These guys are awesome, and we couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake, and original score and voiceover work is provided by Halle Payne. Social media videos and artwork provided by Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening. Thank you.